Welcome to Life in the Pit, a podcast about the lives and adventures of instrumentalists within the wonderful world of musical theater. And now, here is your host, David Lane. And hello, everybody. Welcome to episode number 61. It is good to be with you once again. It's been a while, and uh, it's just my pleasure to talk to you once again about this wonderful world of musical theater and the musicians who play for it. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to be chatting with Joe LaRocca, who plays reeds. He plays flute, saxophone, and quite a few others that we're going to talk about. And he is currently playing on the 50th anniversary of the Jesus Christ Superstar Tour. And um, I talked to him in Costa Mesa, California, and um, I think he will be in Milwaukee as of the time that this uh, podcast comes out. And we'll talk about that, you about where you can find the show and where you can see him. Uh, you can also see Matthew Croft, who is the associate music director, um, and he's a past guest of the show. So two players we've had on Life in the Pit that have been on that tour. And uh, more about that in just a moment. First of all, just a few things related to the podcast. Uh, in addition to the website that you've seen in the show notes, you can now type in Life in the Pit Pod. Dot com. It's not a new website, it's just a redirect, but one that might be a little bit easier to remember <laughs> if you don't remember my name, uh, because the other website is davidlanemusic.com slash podcast. Um, just want to say thank you. We've had uh, several new ratings, uh, two new reviews on the podcast since the last episode, and also we surpassed by, by a good margin the 10,000 download uh, Mark, which, you know, if, if I was someone like Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss, you know, that's probably laughable. They probably do that in an hour after launching a podcast. But for an independently run podcast that is solely about musicians who play for musical theater, that is really, uh, really quite an accomplishment. And I'm really proud of that. Um, and just want to just remind you, if you haven't already given a review or a rating. All those things help us to become more visible. Um, and also at the website, you know, you can leave me feedback. Some of you have done that. And um, you can also feel free, if you are so inclined, there is a donate button. And that is the sole way, uh, for the most part, that we have any revenue at all for this, for this podcast to keep it going. Uh, and I say for the most part because, surprise, we do have a sponsor for today's episode. This episode is sponsored by the Ultimate Music Business Symposium, and you will hear information about that in the middle of the interview uh, for more information. So if you are a musician at all, uh, this is something that I did participate in earlier this year, and this is for the 2022 symposium. All right, uh, just some technical notes before we begin. Uh, so as, as I mentioned earlier, talking about Joe LaRocca, our conversation involved him enjoying Costa Mesa, California at the time of our interview, which was just actually about a week ago. And um, he, he was enjoying the outdoors, uh, which also which includes quite a few dogs barking, uh, cars going down the street, and there's a bit of a hum in there. Um, I think it's still pretty good conversation, and I think the sound is mostly pretty good, but you'll hear some cameo appearances from some sound effects 
Uh, but that's that's okay. You know, you're going you're going to Milwaukee in November, where it's not going to be quite as enticing to go outdoors as California was. But anyways, I'm going to be talking now to Joe LaRocca, who is on his very first tour. So without any further delay, here is Joe LaRocca. So I'm chatting today with Joe LaRocca. And uh, Joe, thank you for taking time. You're on tour right now. So thank you for taking time off to, to chat with me today. Uh, where, yeah, no where, where are you? Where are you right now? So and we're in Costa Mesa uh, currently. Nice. Okay. And you're with the um, um, Jesus Christ Superstar 50th, 50th anniversary tour, right? That's right. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Okay. Um, and so let's just start. Just tell us a little bit about like what are what are the instruments you play, and you know, like where where are you originally from? So in this show, I play um, tenor sax, mm -hmm. which is actually kind of weird for a read one book, but um, there's tons of like, it's a very featured part of the show because if you ever heard the, or watch the show or, you know, listen to the Brown album, there's a lot of tenor sax soloing and stuff. So that's kind of the primary instrument of the show. But then I also play flute and clarinet. And um, yeah, I'm originally from Chicago. I... Uh, you know, I grew up there, um, went to undergrad at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, then came back to Chicago to finish my degree at Columbia College. And um, yeah, there I kind of studied pretty much those three instruments um, and then eventually made my way toward making flute my primary instrument. So that's kind of the short story of my uh, my education. Nice, nice. We'll get into that a little bit more in just a moment. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you... Uh... Um, so you, you started off in the middle of the country, went to school in the far right, and now you're currently touring in the far left. So <laughs> one way to look That's at right, it. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, I'm actually based in Boston right now. Oh, so nice. while I am on the road, that's kind of where my, um, um, base of operations is. We can get into that later. Okay, cool. Um, you know, uh, speaking of tenor sax and read one books, I think... If I'm not mistaken, isn't the Rocky Horror Show, is that the same situation? I, I, I've only done that show one time as a music director, but also once as a sub. And I think tenor sax is like the main thing that the reed player does for that show. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that would make sense. I've actually never played that one. Um, and I've actually not played a lot of shows, but we can talk about that as a dig board okay. into career stuff. I always like to ask, how did you first get started in, in music in general? And how did that lead to, you know, all the reed, the reed instruments that you play? Sure. Well, um, I started on alto sax when I was a kid um, because my mom wouldn't let me play bass. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to play, you know, upright, you know, classical bass and my mom was not having it. Cause she was like, you're going to quit because you're not going to want to carry that around. Mm. So I just picked saxophone kind of out of the blue. Um, I think it might have had something to do with like, uh, I think it was like a Sesame street character or a Muppets character. That was, uh, like an owl that played saxophone. And I was also really into the Simpsons and I like, liked bleeding gums, Murphy and Lisa stuff. And right. Still to this day, get chills when I hear Lisa and Bleeding Gums playing Saxman <laughs> or Jazzman. Sorry, Jazzman. Nice. Um, because it's such a cool scene. You know, it really is, and it's such a 
that song too like has such a hip alto like or um or is it tenor sense but anyway it's got like just such a cool sax part to it so anyway so i carried that in through middle school and um eventually went to military school hmm. when starting in seventh grade um it had nothing to do with behavioral stuff it was actually more of like a family tradition kind of thing right and um i it's a seventh to twelfth grade thing and um you know I, I wanted to get through my first year as quickly as possible because I knew I would regret it if I didn't because the first year is the toughest one because you're like a new boy, right? And like you go through this whole thing. And so I was like, let's just get it over with and get it done. And I was really gung-ho about it my seventh grade year and actually stopped doing music um, because the band, it was interesting because you have different companies, right? And there was a separate company for band and um I didn't want to be in band company because my brother had gone to the school earlier and they were notoriously like just what they called POSs. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they were just like not into the whole military thing, which later on was what I would eventually become. Right? right. But when I was in seventh grade and 12 and stupid, I was like so into the military aspect of it. Um, and then in my eighth grade year, I decided I wanted to like keep playing music because the band director found out that I could play um you know saxophone and so he was like yeah you have to join the band um and i was just i was roped into it right right um so i was doing sax i was actually playing very sax that. that was like my thing for a long time throughout high school and early in undergrad um but then they also had a bagpipe band there like a highland bagpipe band because that was it was an old school that was founded by a scott mm. and um they had a bagpipe band so i did that too so I kind of did those things parallel to each other. Didn't really take either of them seriously, but I think I had enough talent to carry me through and like put me on top of the band thing in, in a small school <laughs> where right. like there wasn't a lot of competition. And as I got into high school, there was more need for different instruments, right? So it was an all boy boarding school with like 300 cadets, right? So like nobody played flute. So I had to pick up flute when I was like 15. And then um, eventually picked up clarinet in undergrad. Um, but I also played some tuba and some bass, um, guitar, some percussion. So like there were things that they needed. So I just like, you know, went around to everything. And it was cool because like it kept me intellectually curious about it. And our band director at the time would just keep throwing me instruments to borrow and let me play on them. And um, so that really kind of sparked my interest in 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 um, multi instrumentalism. Yeah. Um, and then as I got into undergrad, I was at Berkeley, and so that became the pivotal moment where I was like, "Wow, I suck! Like, I need <laughs> to like actually focus on one thing." So I started focusing on sax, and um, you know, went through all the proficiencies and everything. And my theory was terrible, so I had to do a lot of work on that. And, I never, I didn't even know what solfege was, you know, I, I came in at a horrible disadvantage, but I, I worked, I worked pretty hard, you know, um, through that time and, um, eventually just wanted to go home back to Chicago. So, you know, and luckily, you know, with doing a, the jazz major thing or whatever, I kind of just did a general performance thing. Um, you know, you're expected to double as well. So I kept, you know, I started playing clarinet in undergrad and taking lessons on that and getting into flute. Um, and really, I kind of 
gravitated toward flute the most. I think I felt like I had the most talent on that. Right. So I kept going, you know, I kept going through the sax thing, but more and more kind of became disillusioned with the jazz world. Because for one thing, I didn't see many career opportunities in it, like just straight up making money because I really wanted to be like a professional performer. I was dead set on that. Right. And um, so I kind of shifted my interest toward flute, started dabbling in classical stuff, Baroque stuff, and eventually went to go get my master's after finishing my undergrad at Columbia, uh, Columbia College in Chicago. Um. I went to go get my master's at NIU, Northern Illinois University. And there it was really cool because like uh, they had a world music department, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, okay, so I'll go back a little bit. I was studying classical flute there, right? So right. like excerpts, repertoire, the whole nine yards, really, really focusing on flute. And I had been taking lessons and everything like that and got just good enough to get into a master's program. And, you know, kind of fudged my resume a little bit to make it seem like I wasn't a total charlatan. <laughs> so, um, but my playing carried me through, you know, and so did, I got really interested in playing orchestral rep and, you know, really kind of put myself in the mindset of wanting to be in an orchestra, right? Um, so I was focusing on piccolo a lot as well. But then the world music department, that kind of kept me on the multi-instrumentalist sort of you know, keep it in the back of my mind because they had a Middle Eastern ensemble where I was playing saxophone and clarinet. Because if you're playing Turkish music, like you have to either play the nai or the clarinet, right? Right. And I did. I was not about to learn a hollowed out piece of bamboo <laughs> um, that is horribly difficult to play. So I played. I kept playing clarinet and stuff. And um, yeah, went through that, and then eventually also did i did an artist diploma program which is like a fully funded um kind of program that they only award to like maybe one or two people a year um at like conservatories right and so i mm -hmm. went to laundry school of music in boston and that's where i really kind of found a a good city to establish myself in right um in the classical world but also you know but you know so i, I graduated from that program and then immediately started teaching um, which was just a miserable experience in, in the situation I found myself in, right. um, which was, you know, doing it through a music store and through a public school system. Right. Now, the public school system was actually better because it paid better. And at least there were a lot of students and right. like it wasn't, you know, so bad. But the store was just soul sucking because like they took all the money and, you know, right. didn't do that much to recruit students and for some reason, we keep forgetting that I don't teach brass. Like, I, like right. they're just like, oh, we have someone who wants to play trumpet. I'm like, then hire a trumpet teacher. I don't know what you want. So right. I did that. I did that for a year um, before I landed this job. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, it was interesting because I hadn't really done much musical theater, even though I could play all these instruments. Um, in that year, after I finished my artist diploma, I just started once people got wind that I could play flute well and play saxophone like acceptably, then they were all over it because notoriously saxophone players are, are bad at flute. Um, only because like, you know, in the typical sax education, saxophone is God, right? And right. your doubles are your doubles. You get good enough at them 
to kind of get the notes out in big band stuff, right? Which is very, you know, not very exposed and everything like that. Not to say that all sax players are bad at flute, but it's just the trend, right? Right. Um, So I started doing musical theater gigs in like high schools and even middle schools and community theaters and stuff like that. I even did, my favorite one was doing, um, well, actually I have two favorites. One was Beauty and the Beast because it was just straight up flute and piccolo. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just really fun to play. Um, and those get really competitive because like flute players want to do musical theater stuff, but they can only play flute most of the time. Right. Right. So they always want to get on that. So it was a real, um, treat to be able to do that, even though it was just like a high school or whatever. Um, and then the other one was at Concord players in in Concord mass, we did, um, Oh God, what was it called? The secret garden. Oh yeah. Um, which was a really fun book because it has like, 12 doubles or something like that and all of them are like penny whistles and recorders and you know just really up my alley just stuff i had done before yeah there's a lot um, of celtic style in that show if i if i totally recall. yeah yeah and i had actually done celtic ensemble at berkeley um because i had had some bagpipe chops and then once you get interested in highland music you know you start to get curious about other celtic styles as well so i had done like wood irish flute and like tin whistle and stuff like that so i was really suited for that show and that really made me feel good about about doing that stuff so i started just kind of putting out feelers for tours because it was like okay you know that would be something cool to do because i hate teaching so like (laughs) let's just do this while i'm still young right right so um so yeah i mean that's kind of the long and short of of uh right how I got to where I am now. So, so now is this your first tour or did you do any, anything for this? This is my very first tour. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I I was looking at, you know, you mentioned some of the other instruments you've done. You, you you know, your bio has, uh, you know, a list of some of the non-traditional, uh, you know, uh, as far as Western woodwinds go like uh, traverso flute dizzy right dizzy recorder and then uh this is new to me i've never seen this before is it hummulchin bagpipes how does oh sure yeah um so the hummulchin pipes are a german medieval bagpipe that i just bought like last year wow so i can add that to my resume and it's interesting with medieval music because all right well i'll take it back to the beginning so when i was at so this is like my foray into historical performance, mm-hmm. right? And for people who don't know what historical performance is, they also call it early music. It's just right. basically playing stuff on period instruments from 1750 and earlier, mm-hmm. or even classical stuff. They have period stuff with, um, you know, you have people like the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston. They play um, Beethoven on period instruments, which is a nightmare to me. <laughs> but, right. you know, they have like eight key um, they have basically flutes that were Baroque flutes with a bunch of keys stuck on them to try to, you know, keep up with Mozart and Beethoven, right? Because <laughs> they right. were just writing music that was not well suited for the instruments. So they had to evolve. So anyway, when I was at Longy, they have a historical performance program, right? Mm-hmm. Which a lot of conservatory have, have, conservatories have, but just as many, if not more conservatories don't have because right. there's not a lot of people who get into it because it's it's very hard to like actually make a career out of it so for me to this day it's still kind of just an expensive hobby <laughs> right um but i have you know but i play the the rep at a high level but like it's you know 
Right. A lot of the people who are doing it on a professional level have been doing it since the resurgence in the 80s. Right. Um, so anyway, so I started doing that just traverso flute, just bought like a regular kind of, there's no such thing as a student model traverso flute really, but it's kind of the entry level um, traverso flute, which is um, a copy of a um, a flute by a maker named Polanka from Italy in seventeen something sixties or something like that. So I started playing that, and so you know Bach stuff like that, Telemann, Quantz, um, just started doing that on a very secondary basis. Um, and so when you start doing that, you also start getting interested in Renaissance flute and you know medieval stuff and so i just started kind of collecting <laughs> right um you know especially once i started getting work i would just start kind of you know spend some money on this and that and it, it's it's a really fun thing to get into because it's really interesting to kind of try to get into the heads of people who write treatises and mm-hmm. and try to perform this rep at you know what would be acceptable at that time but also kind of break those rules a little bit too Right. So that's kind of a, what was a fun intellectual curiosity. So I played, you know, the the traverso flute and the recorder, um, and then also those Hummelchen pipes, which it's so with Baroque flute. There's a lot written about the Baroque era, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the Quantz the Quantz book, which is pretty much like the Bible of of that period of the Baroque periods, like the Baroque era and the Galant era kind of performance practice, right? The mm-hmm. older you get, the less is known about it, right? So there's a little bit of a freedom to like performing medieval music, um, and uh, so there's it, it's kind of liberating in a way. So I ended up getting those and just kind of uh, you know starting to dabble into performance of that. Now I haven't performed on the Hummelchen pipes yet, but I have done like medieval stuff on Renaissance flute, right. uh, mostly for people's recitals and stuff like that at at Longy. Um But now I'm just kind of starting to dig into it a little bit more. I have a couple of guys that I work with. Um, one is a cello player who also plays um, BL, which is like a medieval violin. Yeah. And a, a harpsichord player who also, you know, of course plays like organ, and which is suited well and is starting to dig into lute stuff. So that's kind of uh, uh, an intellectual curiosity that, that may blossom into career stuff at some point. Um, but I I don't hold out much hope <laughs> because right. in in the early music world it's you, you're you're seen as a charlatan a little bit unless that is 100 percent of your focus right um hmm. I, it's not true for everybody but like that's kind of the sense I got doing some of these um you know summer workshop festival right things like Amherst early music and um, Longy also had a summer baroque in, uh, institute so. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, the the last question I had about the the Hummelchen bagpipes, since I since that's kind of a new thing for me. How does that, how would that compare to either the Scottish bagpipes or like the Uilian pipes? Uh, how how what's the difference? Right. Right. Well, I'm glad you know the difference between those even because a lot of people do not. Right. Um. So just to speak as if I'm speaking to somebody who has no idea about what the, what any of these. Are the great Highland bagpipe is what everybody's familiar with. It's mm-hmm. what plays in the parades. Ironically, what plays in the St. Patrick's Day parade every year is Uilian. Um, <laughs> oh, it should be. No, it's, it's the Highland bagpipe. Right, right, right. right. But the Illin yeah. pipes aren't a parade instrument, right? So the Highland bagpipes are basically evolved from a type of Pakistani bagpipe, right? Because that's where they first 
mm-hmm. were developed, right? Right. It's basically goat skin with a bunch of shams stuck into it, right? Right. Um, spread all throughout Europe. There's bagpipes for every culture, every time period since, you know, the Dark Ages. Um, all shapes and sizes. But the Highland bagpipe was evolved specifically for war, right? right. It's big. It's loud. The, everything you hear is like um, what's considered light tunes, yeah. which are orders right they're essentially bugles right so you have your retreats your marches or this and that and then they also use it for highland um highland dance um Mm -hmm. which like you'll see they like make their fingers like this and kind of dance around like they're supposed to be simulating deer right um similar kind of dress to um irish step dancing but very different style um and that's actually the most complex music of that and then the illin pipes you hear in pretty much every james horner score um yeah because the biggest difference is that it can play all 12 notes right um and so you can actually play um in different keys and such and it's easier to record and it has a much sweeter much quieter tone to it it's more like a violin in its volume um whereas the highland yeah, that's, I was just gonna say it's funny you mentioned that because the only reason I know the difference between these pipes is because I'm a big film music buff, and uh, you know yeah. I fell in love with the Braveheart score when it came out, and you know this was like uh, I mean internet was like brand new back then, so it was but I started even then hearing people came out of the woodworks that that weren't fans of the of the score. It was like. Well, that's historically inaccurate. He shouldn't have been used those pipes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. frankly, I mean, even using a modern Highland bagpipe would have been historically inaccurate as right. well, because first of all, they don't know if they even had bagpipes back then. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. It's it's been a long time since I've actually studied Highland bagpipes. Yeah. But the type of music they would have been playing back then is extraordinary. It's not what we know today. Like it's right. not British Army, like nineteenth right. century music. Right. It's not Scotland, the brave. It's this very kind of like you can like it more to like ancient Greek music in terms of how little we know about it. Right. Right. (laughs) Um, It's stuff that they would have played at places like Stonehenge. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like these ancient sort of ritualistic sort of things. But um, Uh, one of one of the big events in uh, North Carolina is um, we have a we have a place called Grandfather Mountain. It's one of the big highland games of the east coast i mean it's it's, it's actually big enough that people from scotland come over here uh but the last time that i was there i think i've only been there twice uh, it was a full day and you know there's so many bagpiping groups all over yeah and and i just noticed you constantly hear something all the time so it was jarring the four seconds that there was nothing playing. It was like, it was exactly, I even counted exactly four seconds of no bagpipes, but it's so, so prevalent, especially like at the yeah. Highland games and so forth. But, but, uh, but like, uh, so how do, how does that differ from the Hummelchen pipes? So the, the Hummelchen pipes are like medieval, right? Right. Um, I forget what time period, probably 12th century, wow. 13th century, something like that. Hmm. Um, really quite close to the renaissance um in terms of like because there are types of medieval pipe that are even older than that right and then there's some that are newer so this is okay so the highland pipe is like a three drone bagpipe mm-hmm. and it has a chanter on it right which is basically like it has a double reed in it a yeah. free blowing double reed 
Um, so the Hummel chin pipe also has a chanter that's a free blowing double reed, but it's much smaller and it's much quieter. Mm. Um, and it has a sing. I got one with a single drone. Now you can get as many drones as you want, essentially. Um, there's not a lot that these makers go off of in terms of like design and stuff like that. So like they're, they're free to kind of do what they want in a lot of ways. Right. Um, there are like historical examples that exist and they measure those and stuff. But a lot of times they'll take like a variation of one thing and sort of make other things. Um, so the one I got has a single drone right. and a lot of the music you play is sort of the same stuff that re medieval recorder players play or versions of like vocal music and stuff like that. So there's not a, a, a litany of repertoire that's written specifically for that. Um, again, which is quite liberating, um, but at the same time confounding for somebody who's trying to get a frame of reference to something. But luckily with something like the bagpipes, the notes kind of play themselves. There's not a lot of room for expression, so you can play around with arrangement more right. than anything. Um, so that's kind of the difference between those. But again, I mean, I am, my experience on, I'm very new to the historical performance world in general, let mm. alone medieval performance, let alone the bagpipes. <laughs> nice. Um, my, and my experience on the Highland pipes was, yeah, you talk about the Highland games, like I, I would never have been able to like actually compete in one of like the solo competitions oh. there. I was able to play maybe like a grade five or four band, mm. uh, one being the top, right? Right. So, you know, I was I was okay at it, but um, I ended pretty early because I knew, like I don't really have much interest in playing the Highland Pipes anymore because like I have to gear my energy toward things that'll actually make me money. Right. <laughs> you know, and I also love improvisation, mm -hmm. which does not lend itself well to like, trad heads you know to people right. who are playing traditional music so i've kind of set that aside a little bit um in terms of like celtic music especially but i have enough chops on that to like um you know for instance i played some irish flute again for a recording for this band who was recording some stuff written by this band from poland that's kind of like this prog rock celtic fusion stuff oh yeah um so i did that um, and I, you know, again, stuff like secret garden comes up. So that experience really helps. Yeah. Nice. We're going to take just a short break to hear from the sponsor of today's episode. Hey there. My name is Dr. Garrett Hope. I am a composer, coach, podcaster, and speaker. I've been focused on building my music business since 2014 and helping others build theirs since 2015. I want to tell you about the second annual Ultimate Music Business Summit we are organizing. It'll take place early January of 2022. There will be dozens of presentations with highly actionable content, all of it available to you so you can start your business, grow your business, and ultimately make more money. Because here's the deal. Unless you earn all of your income from an employer, you are a self-employed small business owner. And if you want to do more than survive, if you want to grow your audience, or if you want to impact more people, you have to think and act like a business owner. And that means this summit is for you. This summit will give you real world, not theoretical strategies you can implement immediately. You don't need to be stuck with fear or living in your failures. I promise you, with all the teachers lined up, you will get something you've never thought of before. Even though building a business is hard, no one is promising it's easy. It is possible. You just need the right tools and strategies. Tickets for this virtual event will go on sale soon. To be the first in line and to get more information about the summit, presenters, and more, 
Go to musicsummit.biz, that's musicsummit.biz, and add your email to the list. So, so I'm going to try to steer us into um, something related to tours right now. I'm not too sure yeah. what direction it will take. Um, but yeah. I wanted to get into this because of the previous episode that I did. So um, okay. the last episode I talked about... Uh, so for so just kind of a refresher, kind of a background for everybody. Most of my theater experience has come with either community theater or colleges or high schools, you know, basically, you know. But I had an opportunity to um, to sub for keyboard two for a for a as a local musician for a tour that was coming to our area recently, and I told the story about how. Um, it was a lot more pressure than I was expecting. And, uh, after the, the day of, you know, double rehearsals, my, I, my contractor was asked to relay, to tell me, please not to come back. You know, it's like, I, di- I didn't quite mm. meet the standard on that. So I thought it would be, it, it's kind of timely that the first person I talked to since that episode is on a tour right now. And, um, I thought, <clears throat> Since you know, uh, obviously every situation is different. It's not the same show. You're you're not playing right. the same instrument. Um, so I thought it would be kind of interesting just talk about what did you feel like you had to do to prepare for the level of music you know that you're expected to play on the tour, and what was your you know what kind how did how did you get the gig and uh, right. and so forth? Just uh, yeah, just kind of getting onto tour and what you felt like you had to do as an individual musician to be secure in right. being prepared. Right. Well, I'll take it from the top and tell you how I got the job first. Okay. So this job was listed on Playbill at first, mm-hmm. um, and I'll just kind of go at it from what I knew then. Right. So I saw it on Playbill and it said like, you know, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar National Tour, um, Woodwind, you know, Soul Woodwind spot open, blah, blah, um, you know, must have um, te- like rock tenor sax soloing ability, right? Like in big, bold letters, right? right? And I was like, at that time, I had stopped playing saxophone for quite a while, Um which I tell everybody now. I mean, at the time, I wouldn't have told people what I was trying to get the job. But mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I think I'll pass on this one because I don't know if I even want to do a tour. And like, um, especially like right now, I don't know if I'm ready, right? Because I haven't done that much MT stuff. Um, like I said before, I had done uh, a jazz undergrad um, degree in saxophone um, performance, really. And so I, but I, I had, dedicated myself 100% to flutes to the point where I hadn't played tenor sax in years, mm. right? Let alone, like, I owned one, really. So I was, like, kind of afraid that my chops would have disappeared. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I let it go. I just didn't do it. And eventually it was taken off. Um, eventually, I meet this guy named Brian Ede, who is a um, who is the director of Les Mis tour. Mm. Um, Patan conducting, right? Right. And um, I met him through a conductor I was working with with an orchestra I was playing in um, that I actually currently run as executive director <laughs> um, while I'm on the road. But that's a whole nother story. Um, but the, this conductor, he knew this guy. Right. And I was, you know, I had been talking and he's like, oh, my, we were at the bar after one of our rehearsals. And he said, oh, my friend Brian is in town who's conducting a Les Mis tour. He's playing at the I think it was the Opera House or something in Boston. 
Um, and I was like, oh, I would love to meet him, you know, because I'm, you know, I really like to do more musical theater stuff. Um, at the time, I didn't know this, but the, the conductor I was working with had really talked me up like mm -hmm. big time <laughs> right. to this conductor. And I and so I email him um, because he had given me his email as, you know, and then talk to him. And I get an email from him back saying like, yeah, it's really nice to meet you. This is kind of serendipitous because a music buyer in or a talent buyer in New York um, contacted me like, do you know anybody who could play this Jesus Christ Superstar tour? Like, how are your sax chops? And I kind of was just like, good. You know, yeah. I just, just said, like, I can play saxophone, which I wasn't lying, but I just didn't give him the whole context, right? Right. And so he said, look, give me your resume and, um, you know, we'll see. You know, I'll send it over to him and then they'll, they'll let you know if you can send in music and i'm like oh okay so it's this level there's preliminaries here so i didn't think i had any chance at all mm. but you know since i was doing musical theater stuff anyway i thought okay i'll go get myself a tenor sax right and i took all the money i had saved up like i and bought a tenor sax and so i was just broke again you know right. i had been doing like teaching and odd jobs here and there and i had gotten a, a like a third job doing working for this like research company just doing um you know, data, inputting data, but my knowledge of a musician kind of helped me get that thing because it was a, a, a research study about um, youth orchestras and like the areas they were in. And so I had to go through all these spreadsheets for like a month and assign them numbers based on their, their you know, wherever they could be categorized. Mm -hmm. And so I had like an extra two grand from that. And like two grand does not buy you a very good tenor set, right? Mm -hmm. But I got one anyway. And so I was like, you know, worst case scenario, I have a tenor sax because this is good to have um, as a doubler, right? So like get, getting back into sax again, right? So I um, sent my resume and he was like, okay, I can see right now that like you need to make this resume look like you're more of a saxophone player, right? And so I was like, fine, you know, um, when do you need it by? And he's like, within the next hour. Now, mind you, I was like, I had, I had a student I was going to teach in an hour and I had gotten there early just to like be there. And I was, there was no way I was going to get home to my computer because that was like 45 minutes away. And so I was like, okay, what do I do to do this? Right. So I went to the library and got on this like old computer with a very old version of like Adobe and um, like transferred my whole resume into word and just like changed it up a little bit. And, um, you know, just highlighted the things that I had done on saxophone in the top really just to shift it around. And so I ended up getting it back to him in time, just in time and got back to work just in time. Hmm. And I didn't think, and I just kind of forgot about it. Right. Not long after that, I get a email saying like, okay, you know, you're good. Just send recordings. And this, I later on, I found out this was sent to like, 60 people i mean the same email right just wow. send music yeah. again at this point i felt like there's you know whatever like let's just look at the music and see now i had been playing clarinet at that point like again right since undergrad mm -hmm. for like a year maybe right and my chops were not that great um at least to my standard you know but i've very high standards for myself having like a, a, a master's degree in classical flute performance 
so I'm comparing myself to like classical clarinet players. Right. Um, and the the arrangement was such that like a lot of the violin parts that were in the original score were thrust onto clarinet. And I was like, oh Jesus, here we go. So all that like stuff in the overture that like you know, that was all on clarinet in the stratosphere register, like the high register. And I was like, okay, well, so I worked my butt off in getting that overture done. And the rest of the stuff, the the flute and sax stuff was like nothing. It was a breeze. Like I bought a nice mouthpiece, stuck it on this crappy Chinese tenor and just kind of was like, it was like riding a bike. Like I, I was like, okay, I've been playing saxophone my whole life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, done stuff with bands after, you know, during and after undergrad, just like funk bands and soul group stuff. Um, and so all of that just came flooding back. It never left me, you know, it, it was all there. Um, so I recorded all the easy stuff first. Like I did, um, uh, the damn for all time flute solo where it's, mm-hmm. you know, and that was like, I, I treated it like it was, you know, it was nothing. It was easy. Um, I mean that I, I prepared for auditions like, uh, Peter and the wolf Prokofiev flute solo, like, right this stuff is not even close to that kind of audition rep. And a lot of the sax stuff was just a couple of, you know, kind of padding things and then improvising. Mm -hmm. Um, And they didn't give me a backing track or anything. So I just put some headphones on and put the Brown album on and just started jamming out to it during Mm -hmm. the sax solo stuff. Right. And again, like nothing that difficult because for me, it was like, I've done this stuff forever, you know, like throw some pentatonics some Dorian's and triplets, you know, just like, it, it, it was really easy to do and it was fun. You know, it was like, I had a good time doing it. And then I got to the clarinet stuff and just kind of sweated my way through it, did a few <laughs> takes, you know, but then eventually like did it well enough. And, you know, luckily I was able to play in tune um, because I had a nice enough instrument and, you know, just got decent ears. So like, you know, the tone quality wasn't the best, but it was in tune. So like um, I, I did it. I had taken it so not seriously, like not even not seriously, but like I I didn't think I was going to get it to the point where I was like in my like gym clothes, like doing the audition, like the audition tape. Right. Um, So, you know, I submit it a month goes by. Right. And I'm like, I have no hope at all. Like this, this (laughs) didn't happen. Right. And then out of the blue, like I'm sitting in a pit orchestra for a middle school production of Beauty and the Beast. And um, I get a call and ignore it, right? Right. Because um, it was a New Jersey number. I'm like, who the hell's calling me from New Jersey, right? <laughs> um, but then it hit me. I'm like, wait a minute. Worklight Productions is from New Jersey. And suddenly this wave of like, I'm like, no, 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 no way. This isn't. A-. And then I got a voicemail. I was like, okay, this is crazy, right? So I'm sitting there just like, you know, in anticipation, waiting for the break. Um, because it was just a rehearsal and, um, I get up to go to the bathroom and like, while I'm in the bathroom, <laughs> I'm like listening to a voicemail from Kevin Green, one of our managers. And he was just like, yeah, you know, um, heard your audition, you know, we just want to go ahead and offer you the job. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just blown away. Like I just, everything, you know, suddenly there was hope, <laughs> you right. know what I mean? It was like, and but then I had like the sinking feeling of like, I have to tell my girlfriend this because I didn't even tell her I was submitting this tape. Mm. Right. She has no idea, no idea whatsoever. And we're just about ready to get moving in together. Right. Um, and so I ended up telling her and at first 
she started crying and was like, I can't believe it. But then I told her how much I was making. And this is a, you know, pamphlet B equity tour. And she was like, oh, okay. So we could actually get a nicer place. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, okay, great. So now I have more money to spend. So kind of taking the next step of that, let's say you, you've got the job and at some point you've got the book. What are some things that you do to make sure that you're, you've prepared the book as well? Like what are some practice right. tips maybe that you could share that you, that you use for Jesus Christ Superstar to get that ready? Sure. Well, the, you know, the flute stuff and the sax stuff was not much of a challenge, luckily. Um, but even for that, I could apply some of the techniques I applied to clarinet stuff if it was a little bit tough. Um, with, clar with the clarinet stuff is where I had the hardest part. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, a lot of this violin stuff, a lot of these string lines were thrust onto clarinet in a register that's not comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So the name of the game for me was for one thing, high note, long tones, right? right? So for any woodwind instrument, like in order to be comfortable in high notes, you have to get comfortable in the notes that are higher than that. Right. Um, so even starting at like a reasonable hot, you know, middle high register and just working your way up and just, uh, you know, there's no substitute for time spent on the instrument. You know, it's just playing those notes and then getting higher and higher and then higher than higher, mm -hmm. which on all of the woodwind instruments, it's possible to get higher than the the, the, the instrument is built for. Right. So that's really the best way to get comfortable at it. Um, and then sort of taking certain lines and, of course, you know, it sounds cliche, but playing them slowly and not touching them at a fast tempo until you can play that 10 times without making a mistake right at that temp at a slow tempo right you cannot play it fast unless you can play it slow and this is something i have to keep reminding myself of now as well um now that i'm thinking about doing other auditions and stuff like that um so important and then when you start getting comfortable with that taking smaller segments of the phrases you know even parts of you know segments of measures at full speed Right. Right. And then not in and um, because it's it's a lot easier to play like one little thing at speed and then play that next segment at speed and then starting to put them together and growing bigger and bigger and bigger, but not moving on until it's so comfortable that you that you can never make a mistake on it. Right. right. And that takes a long time. It takes longer than you think, mm -hmm. um, because the immediate. um knee-jerk reaction of people is to like okay now i'm going to do it at speed because i want to be ready now or at least convince myself that i'm ready now and that's that's just you just can't do that um nobody is that gifted <laughs> right you know so yeah that's those are that i mean that's pretty much it really right. um in terms of like how i prepared and how i would advise other people to prepare nice well that's very helpful um, so I know your sample size of tours isn't very big yet, but have you, have you okay. had any memorable, either scary incidences or, or something that's like really memorably happy since you started touring? Anything? Yeah. Well, definitely coming to the tour at first when it, when it first, first started was like scary. Right. Because the first thing that happened was I came in and I, I had no idea what the difference between the tours were. Right. Um, like bus tours, non-equity, equity, pamphlet B, blah, blah, blah. I had no idea. Um, short engagement or otherwise. Um, 
And when I got there, the, one of the first things Emma, our trumpet, um, trumpet two keys three was like, has anybody, or we were all, so I got into the hotel and before I even went up to my room, I saw some of the band guys in the, you know, next to the hotel bar. This was in Syracuse in um, September of 2019. And um, I think the assistant MD, Matt Croft, recognized me and said like, oh, hey, are you, you know, are you one of the guys? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So we, I just hung out with them for a little bit. And um, Emma said, have you guys done a tour like this before? And I'm like, no, I haven't. And she's like, oh, what other tours have you done? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, well, I meant like, have you done like this level of tour before? I'm like, what's the level of this tour? She's like, oh, this is like an equity tour. Like I, you know, like I did, like me and Craig did, uh, you know, this or that tour, like Annie or something like that together. And um, that, you know, that one is a lot of buses and a lot of like one night stays and stuff like that. This is like a higher level. And immediately I was like, oh my God, I'm in over my head. Like, and right. so the name of the game after that became like, don't get fired. Right. Um, because I started, you know, <laughs> when I told them, I was like, I've never done a tour before. They're like, oh, wow, you're really lucky to be getting on this. And I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so as rehearsals started going, I, I was just scared that I was going to mess up the clarinet stuff so badly that they were going to fire me. But they were so enamored with my sax and flute playing. First of all, the flute playing, because they were just like excited that any sax player could play to the level of like a symphonic flute player, right? They were just right. over the moon about it. And so I was really happy about that. Like the music director was happy and the, and the, and you know, in the end, I didn't think, I don't think I was in any real trouble because like the music director knew my ability from my audition tape and they saw my resume and they were impressed at the end of the day. Right. But I was in my own head about it. And, you know, so like some of those first rehearsals, like, especially with the cast and everything like that on the mics in the theater was scaring the absolute bejesus out of me. But as we got into it and people were just like, you know, and people were really praising the sax playing because it, it plays such an integral role. And mm -hmm. if you could pull it off, it's just incredibly exciting. I mean, if you do your job, right. Right. <laughs> as a sax player and Jesus Christ superstar, mm -hmm. it's incredibly exciting. And so people just all over the place like, yeah, man, that's great. That's great. And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry about like squeaking this note on the clarinet. And they're just like, what, <laughs> you know, because mm -hmm. the clarinet stuff is a lot of textural stuff. Like it's in the, you know, the cacophony of everything. And so it's kind of the last thing people are listening to most of the time. But again, it was in tune, not the best tone quality in the world, some mistakes here and there, but that was like the scariest thing for me. Um, now, so to take it to a more positive spin, um, I guess some of the most, uh, I'm trying to think of something that's like a positive experience because um, there were a lot, really. Um, right. When so when you ask like positive experience, do you mean like playing the show or, or like play, traveling? Or play, or tra anything, anything just because of that tour, you know? Just what like what's right. a, like I, I'd say if you're thinking back on this tour in five years, what's a pleasant memory? Well, for sure, when we went to San Diego, mm -hmm. um, I'm scuba certified, mm -hmm. so I took a dive trip with our head of wardrobe hmm. um just at this you know with a with an um um uh, an instructor right right and uh we got to dive in la jolla um in like the near the coves there right. um and 
Oh my God. It was just amazing. I mean, the visibility was great. The, we saw like a sea turtle, which apparently is pretty rare there. There were tons of, uh, I don't know if they're like harbor seals or sea lions. I think they're sea lions out there, but they were just everywhere. And they're like puppies. They wanted to like play with us. It was just amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I just felt incredibly lucky to be able to do something like that on, um, you know, I mean, I paid for the scuba trip, but like the trip itself, like the right. trip getting out there was on the company's dime. And I felt like, wow, I can't like it, it affirmed everything in that moment of what I was trying to do, because it was like my talent got me here. My yeah. hard work got me here, you know, and um, it's just it, it, those things really make it worth it because touring in general is tough. Right. Um, I it's it's so funny because there are people who feel like they can do it forever. You know, there are days that I feel like I can do this forever. And then there are days where I feel like I want to go home right now. Right. You know, um, because it's still discomfort, you know, um, in, in, in certain respects, because like you're laying your head in a different place every week. Like so much of your mental state is like defined by how good this hotel is or how not good this hotel is or how good the surrounding area is mm -hmm. like just this last week. I mean, we're in Costa Mesa now, beautiful Costa Mesa. We have an amazing hotel with a pool and the theater, the Sagerstrom center for the arts is amazing theater. Just beautiful. Right. And before this, we were playing at the golden gate theater in San Francisco, which is like the second tier theater for shows that come into town. It was very old, mm -hmm. no elevator, just stairs. It was in the tenderloin, which is like notoriously crappy. Mm -hmm. um area and like you know literally dodging piles of human fecal matter like oh. on the street walking to the theater mm. and like it's it's a decent place to you know san francisco is a cool place to be but like when you're living in like the worst area it was it just we were there for four weeks too so it really gets to you right um but then at the same time like we got to go hike on angel island you know which mm -hmm. was really amazing um, and then we get to come here this week and then, um, we're going to be in Toronto for five weeks. So like, it, it's just, you know, you kind of take the good with the bad sometimes. Um, right. and, um, so for anybody who wants to get into tours, it's like, you know, or like sleeping can become difficult sometimes, you know, while you're on the road, right. um, especially when you're first getting started and you kind of have to grapple with that. But, um, it's definitely a good experience. Like people, I would recommend it for anybody even if you only do it for like a little bit, it's right. something you'll remember for the rest of your life, really. And it's um, it's it's a decent it, it's I mean, it's a great living, too. But it, and it's also just a great foot in the door for um, professional or like potential Broadway MDs and stuff like that. And because really to get on the Broadway, I mean, that's like the, your best way in is just kind of know the directors, right. <laughs> you know. Right. Um. But again, I mean, I keep myself open to everything, you know, I mean, like, I feel like maybe the world's most perfect symphony audition will come up where I worked with a conductor who can get me to the final round of of the Met Court or the Met uh, Pit audition or something like that. Right. Or I'll be able to do a New York sit down, which will help me, like, make some, you know, leave, you know, make some ground in gigging in New York or I might you know, uh, get a fully funded doctorate in historical performance and teach at Oberlin or something like that. Right. right? Um, I just try to keep those things open because as a performer, that's what you have to do. Right. You nice. know, um, so. 
Okay, well, so when this episode comes out, you will have left Costa Mesa. So just for any of my right. listeners who are interested, you're going to Milwaukee uh, next. Those shows are November 23rd to 28th. Uh, the website right. I'm looking at says that Toronto's after that, but TBA. I don't know if it does. It's, if you go to um, the Mervish website, which okay. Mervish like, does all of the, uh, has all the theaters. So like we're playing a Princess of Wales Theater in Toronto. If you find the website, you could buy tickets there. Okay. Like it's it's happening, nice. um, but for some reason, our website has not been updated. But it is happening. And then um, uh, looks like uh, you get to go home for a bit. Go to Boston after that, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, Boston for two weeks. It's Colonial Theater. Um, um, yeah, that's yeah. going to be really great. I'm cool. excited for that one. A lot of friends are going to come see the show. Uh, some family, in laws, stuff like that. Okay, so if you're a listener, uh, and so that gets us into January, uh, this is what I have so far. So if you're a listener in any of these cities, you might want to go to a website, check out for tickets for Jesus Christ Superstar 50th Anniversary Tour. So i uh, got Indianapolis, Providence, Rhode Island, Cleveland, Ohio, Washington, D.C., Fort Myers, Florida, Charlotte, North Carolina, which is close to me. So uh, nice. depending on my schedule, maybe, but it's a, yeah. well, it's late May, that's possible. So uh, <laughs> as my schedule kind of starts to ease up a bit about then. Um, Kansas City, Missouri, Dallas, Texas, Atlanta, Georgia. Actually, this goes on for a while. I'm just going to say, if you're in a big city, check it out. Yeah. You're probably coming by. So yeah, well, this, this tour ends on August 7th. Too. Yeah. <laughs> well, for some of these two, like get on it, even if it's in May or something like that, because my cousins were trying to get something for Kansas City and they couldn't even find two seats together. Like wow. a lot of these are getting sold out quick. Nice. So. Do you have any other projects outside of the tour that you want to share? Uh, and I guess, actually, I'll just go ahead and also ask, um, where can people find out more about you or follow you on social media? Sure. Well, um, let's see. First thing, well, with my stuff, I have a YouTube page. Um, I'm just Joe LaRocca. Um, if you look me up on Facebook, um, you can, you know, find me there. And, um, my, my website is joelarockflute.com. Okay. Um, and that'll, you know, lead you to my YouTube page, um, which has some, I have some Baroque stuff that I recorded recently and some older stuff and I'll be putting everything I have up there. Um, one of my biggest pet projects right now is that I am executive director of an up and coming orchestra called the Dubois orchestra, which I'm leading from the road. And, um, that is an orchestra based in Boston, which, um, is dedicated to performing, um, works by historically marginalized composers alongside the classical canon, um, which we've been doing since 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, we actually have performances. Well, it might <laughs> actually, it'll be, it's tomorrow from when we're or it's tonight from when we're recording. So it'll be passed already. But right. if you want to check out more about the orchestra, um, DuboisOrchestra.org, D-U-B-O-I-S, Orchestra.org. Um, you can find, like, all kinds. Of, we have a lot of recordings up um, from recent concerts, um, stuff by, uh, we have, we recently put up a performance of Dvorak 8 that we have, mm. and then a piece by a, compo a classical composer, a black classical French composer, named Joseph Bologna Chevalier de St. George. Hmm. Um, we have a movement of one of his symphonies up on our YouTube page. So nice, good quality recording. And um, yeah, you can figure out how to support the orchestra. It's a nonprofit organization. So we go completely off of donations, almost completely. Um, 
And uh, yeah, we're just kind of trying to build ourselves up in a kind of grassroots way and kind of compete with the big boys who have all this old money. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Nice. Just just finishing up here, just want to say thanks for coming on. And if, in case I forgot to yeah. mention it at the beginning, um, we'll, we'll thank the dogs behind you for, for also contributing. Had <laughs> some yeah. dogs in here, so um yeah that, that's all that's all part of it so you're enjoying a nice day outside um yeah thank you for letting me do that all right well congrats you know congratulations on a successful tour so far and hope the rest of the yeah. tour goes well all right thank you so much really appreciate it and that wraps up episode number 61 and thank you once again for listening um so we are in mid-november on the second half of november of 2021 um I'm not going to say that there definitely will not be another episode until 2022, but it's kind of likely. Um, you know, one of the things that I've heard a lot of guests say on this podcast is that it's really important to say yes to opportunities. Uh, and that kind of goes against the grain of, you know, like what a lot of uh, psychologists, or, or I should say what a lot of career coaches will tell you as, uh, you know, you need to learn to say no more often. And I think there's a fine line there. Well, I have said yes to so much coming out of this pandemic I have a wall of projects, things that are that are due uh, from from the other things that I do as a composer um, that are really kind of stressing me out at, at the moment of just making sure that I have enough time to do that. Uh, so I think I'm going to have to put life in the pit on hold for the rest of 2021. So this is going to be for break. Um, but I'm going to try uh, to gather some guests, uh, some interesting um, material and and have something for you hopefully early in 2022. And uh, just before I leave, I just wanted to remind you, you know, this was the first sponsored episode of Life in the Pit. If you would like to sponsor an episode um, and you have something that you think would be relative to the listeners, uh, feel free to contact me uh, through the contact form at lifeinthepitpod.com. And uh, just want to wish everybody happy holidays since this will probably be the last episode of the year. Um, thank you so much for supporting this podcast. It's been so good reaching these milestones that I mentioned earlier and uh, just hearing from you and knowing that this podcast means a lot to several of you out there. So thank you once again, and we will see you next time. As a reminder, if you want to follow what's coming up next, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Life in the Pit Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at David Lane Music or on Twitter or Facebook at David M. Lane Music. And as always, a special thanks to Mark Parolo for his cover art and to Bill Cisna for providing the introduction to this podcast. The theme music is composed and performed by David Lane. You can find out more about this podcast, leave feedback, or donation at Life in the Pit Pod. Com. Please rate and review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with your friends. Thank you for listening.